everyone, welcome to the 255th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's co-host, Chris Albrecht of TheSpoon.Tech. That's right, everyone. Kevin has the flu. It is tragic and sad, but he will be back. And in the meantime, I have my good friend, Chris Albrecht, who is, like he said, editor-in-chief over at the food tech site, The Spoon. So, of course... We're going to sprinkle a little food love in here, but we're going to hit the main topics that even Kevin and I would hit. So, Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's going to be great. So, this week, we are going to be talking about, whoo, the FTC bombshell. It's going back 10 years looking at small acquisitions. We'll talk about that, plus the approval for the T-Mobile Sprint acquisition, what that means for IoT. Nest is calling for two-factor authentication, about time. ARM has new edge chips for the IoT. We've got news bits from LifeX, Tuya, and Chris is going to tell us about a fancy kitchen gadget that he is loving. And our guest this week is Naomi Lefkowitz, who is from NIST. She's the person who is behind NIST's new privacy framework, so we're going to ask her all about that and how to build privacy-focused devices. We're also going to hear from our sponsors, Digicert, and very. So before we get into it, let's hear from very. Are you looking for an IoT development team who's been there, done that? Very's award-winning full-service IoT development firm will work with you to deliver your IoT solution on time and on budget. Learn more at www.verypossible.com. That's www.very P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E dot com. Okay, Chris, let's get started with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. This was Tuesday afternoon, and all of a sudden it said, hey, bunches of companies, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and kind of a surprise, Microsoft, Basically, we're going to need to look at the last 10 years of your acquisitions and make sure they're, they weren't used to stifle competition in the market, which kind of scary. I don't know. Did you have a take when you saw this? Like, well, I want to hear yours first. So why does, why is scary the first word that you use? Well, one, because we've been talking for a good year or so about like, oh, tech is too big. And we haven't really heard a lot of convincing arguments about how the FTC could handle breaking apart the tech firms. And going after a a decade's worth of M&A activity feels pretty scary because what if they, like, how would you undo those acquisitions? Would you just find people? Would you find the companies because of it? Would you seek to like pull out the technology, the people? I mean, in some cases, these are like aqua hires and Everybody has moved on. So I find it scary because it feels like that is going way far back. And what are you going to do if you find out this was a problem? My first reaction in this was, given the administration we're currently under, which is a bit vindictive, I was like, well, who, what do they want to dig up and why? Now, I I realize that is a very sort of paranoid approach. But to your point, like, what are they going to do? If something like, like, yeah, yeah, how do you extricate a deal from 2010 or 2011? It just seems like such a 
I don't know. I mean, a ready, shoot, aim kind of approach to this. Like, I don't know what exactly, what, what do they do if they, to your point, what do they do if they find something? How much time and energy and resources are going to be put into this? And how much of then now uh, companies do they have to devote to fulfilling any kind of requests for information or anything like that? I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm all for transparency. I, I know there's a broader discussion to be had around the tech world and the tech world being too big. But it seems like, wow, 2010, a lot has changed since 2010. I know. We were just getting LTE networks and like, well, we had the iPhone, but we just got the iPad. Ah, and now we don't really care about it. So a few details. One. This is going to focus primarily on smaller deals. And these are deals that are less than $500 million because those don't typically trigger an FTC investigation. So this isn't things like, hey, Google has an, or Alphabet has announced that it wants to buy Fitbit. That's a pending deal, not something that would go under scrutiny under this particular thing. But it's all these smaller deals. They're also going to be looking at deals that the acquisitions were shuttered after the purchase. So this brought to mind, actually, Google, through its Nest division, bought a company called Revolve way back in like 2016. Revolve was a smart home hub, and it made one of the first hubs that had Zigbee and Z-Wave and Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. It was lovely. Everyone was excited about it. When Google bought it, they shut it down. I'm imagining they shut it down because they didn't want to have to deal with like the extra engineering staff. But the question is, did that hurt competition in this space? You might say it did because it you know, made it much more difficult. It made hubs harder to, I guess, purchase and it made it a less viable business option. But other deals that I think would be, I don't want to say worth scrutinizing, but are of interest to our audience, Google has purchased a couple companies other than Revolve that feel kind of like they're in the IoT space. They bought a company called Thrive Audio that does surround sound. I'm wondering if we're seeing that in the Google Max. Yeah. Uh, they've purchased a bunch of image recognition and computer vision companies that those are kind of hard to say because, you know, are they buying an algorithm? Are they buying just smart people? My hunch says smart people, so I don't know how anti-competitive that is. They bought a company called Chronologics. That's a smartwatches company that we've never really heard from ever again. So they've done some health acquisitions. They bought a company called Synosis a while back, a couple years back that uh, used phones for like health monitoring stuff. That company was in the process of getting their funding uh, before Google came in and got them. So, but the other one is, it's like, you think about Apple, Apple always makes those like, you know, like, oh, hey. We bought this, you know, th these very stealthy acquisitions that you don't hear about until somebody digs up something. Yeah, they actually just completed one called Exynor.ai. And Exynor was the back end software that provided motion detection in our wise cameras that we all know and love. So Apple did that. And the assumption is they're going to use Exynor's technology, which is edge based image recognition on a battery powered or a low powered device. So Think about if Apple can do image recognition without sucking the juice on your smartphone or on maybe their own cameras. So would something like that count? Apple also bought a company called Bedit. And Bedit is where I think a lot of the sleep tracking technology that we're going to see coming out in the Apple Watch is coming from with sleep apnea detection, that sort of thing. Silk Labs is another one. Silk Labs is a company that was making a smart home hub and entire ecosystem. 
So it was a little stealthy. So we're not 100% sure. They also had like some really beautiful hardware. The bigger point still stands. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're looking for a pattern of behavior, but the competitive landscape of 2010 is just so hard to even remember right now. Like it was the iPhone 4, I think at that point. It's so hard to go back in time to then. From an IoT perspective, we didn't have Nest. Nest launched in 2011. It was purchased by Google in a review deal that would not be part of this overview. It was purchased by Google in 2014. Were there any connected lights? Like you didn't have Ring? No, you know, Hue didn't come out until like 2011. Wemo was out in 2011. Like 2011s, we started seeing a lot of connected home products just starting to hit the market. Yeah. So, and on all this AI nonsense that we talk about all the time now, that was nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Nowhere. This was before we were like doing amazing things in that department. So this will be worth watching. We'll see what happens and stay tuned because I'm sure we're going to keep talking about it for the next couple months. The FTC didn't just like freak out the entire tech ecosystem with this other announcement. They also said that they would approve the T-Mobile Sprint deal. This was actually not just the FTC. This was a judge that said, yeah, let's just go ahead and do it. The FTC actually was a little like, "Mm, I don't know if we're going to do this. So this is going to turn the number three and number four carrier into just the number three carrier. From the IoT perspective, it's worth noting that T-Mobile and Sprint both had NBIoT networks. Sprint's was a little bigger. Sprint does have a fully functioning IoT platform. And by that, I mean, you could go to Sprint and buy any number of connected devices that were already on their network that you could use like sensors and that sort of thing, plug them in and then use their cloud backend to like monitor that. So if you were a small business and you're like, oh, I need some temperature sensors for my fridges, you could just buy it, plop them all in there and Sprint took care of everything. You just pay them. So that's, I don't really think other than more spectrum, probably higher bills eventually. No, this is going to affect consumers more than it will the business customers. Is there anything I was going to say, if there's like an industrial IOT angle to this, like I'm squarely on the consumer end. I don't have T-Mobile or Sprint. So honestly, it doesn't impact me directly. I know it does in a broader like existential way, but is there anything on the industrial side that you know about that they're doing? In areas where they have service, there are corporate customers. It's not industrial so much as it's enterprise. There may be an opportunity or a challenge to companies who are reselling their service. So like companies like Particle or other IoT module vendors might contract with these guys to provide the service on the back end. They might see their rates rise, but not really. This is kind of like a nothing burger deal from the IoT perspective. Yeah. But in really exciting news, woohoo! Y'all, Nest has enabled two-factor authentication. And by enabled, I mean they are forcing it on you. Oh, we have been talking about this because we think it's really important for things like cameras and, yeah, even thermostats that have control of your house. Having two-factor is important. And by two-factor, we're talking about you have a password that gets you into your account in the app, but you're also going to have to, when you log in, not maybe every time, but some of the time, you're going to have to log in with a secondary code that comes from either a text, or maybe it will come from authenticator app on your phone or something else. 
can you walk me through how this would work, right? So I'm just trying to think about if I have something, if I'm controlling something with my phone, I recognize the importance of like two-factor authentication. I'm a big believer in it, and it's surprising that it has taken this long for something like this. But do you have a sense of what it will be, What will it be a, how it will be integrated in sort of the workflow and how you control your IoT stuff? Sure. So my hunch, and I'm not 100% sure this is how it's going to work, I don't think that they're going to force you every time you try to log in to change the thermostat. I don't think they're going to force you to give your authentication code, right? Yeah. My hunch is they'll either make it like every every three months. You'll have to, I know Ring has you do it every, I think it's two or three months you have to log in. In Nest, if you are a new login, they're going to have a verification code that goes to your email and if you can't do that, you can't log into your account. So they're going to have to balance sort of security with usability. Yeah, which is always the hard thing. But what this does is for everybody out there who reuses their passwords, I know you're out there. What's wrong I, with you? I used to do that too. You did? Uh-huh, before I got a oh, password manager. I am quietly judging you. You are actually audibly judging me, but that's okay. <laughs> I accepted. I was wrong, but I have changed and reformed. And this is especially important, I'm going to tell you, for cameras. The big ring, quote unquote, hack was because people reused their passwords. And then when those passwords were compromised, people went in and said, oh, let's see which of these these three million passwords we have. Let's see which of these people have ring accounts. And then maybe we can terrorize their children. That happened to a guy that I met here at a party. He was saying that someone started talking to him through his security camera. And I can't remember if it was Ring. It also happened to Nest. So they had it set up and somebody in France or somebody started talking to them. Yeah. Oh, oui, oui. Bien <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>, sûr. <laughs> uh, all right. So Nest so, is wait, going. But oh. let me ask you this real quick. Like, do you think this will spur on other people? Will this create the wave of adoption that you're looking for, do you think? I hope so for certain devices. And I said, and, and I wonder if this is a result of California. California, as of January, basically is saying they have a device security law that says companies have to provide appropriate security for the type of data that can be gleaned from their device. So for a camera that's inside, they probably want higher levels of security. So Nest may be reacting actually to that, to be proactively saying, all right, this needs a higher level of security than just a password, especially since we know people reuse their passwords. So let's force people to do two-factor. I also think if this becomes standard across the industry, we're going to see more convenient and easier ways to do two-factor so it won't be quite such a pain in the butt. Like yeah. with Nest sending you an email, that's all right. That's not the worst thing that can happen. I always get frustrated when, you know, you've got to find your RSA key, log it, you know. <laughs> Get Would Face that. ID do it? So, so Face ID is a really interesting one. It could work, yes, because that is a, a multi. That is another way to fact, like to make sure that it, you're you. And so, those are the kind of things that I think would be really compelling going forward. Maybe even voice match. Yeah, I mean, Face ID is so quick. Any app that I have that I had that uses it, like it is not an inconvenience at all. Right. I think yes, we're going to see more companies roll this out pushed by both the market and by laws. But I also think as that happens, companies are going to invest in making it easier. So that could be good. All right. Are you ready to talk about chips? 
I'm just going to go out and get a snack while you go ahead and, uh, and chip it up. That is fair. So Arm, they launched this week two new designs. And Arm, as you guys are probably familiar, they are a chip licensing firm. So they license architectures for chips. And they're super popular in the Internet of Things because they work really well at doing a lot of processing at low power consumption. So what ARM has done is they've created two new chips for edge IoT, specifically AI at the edge. Woo! Yay! All that fa- all those all those fancy words basically mean these are two designs that will let you do machine learning, just the inference, not the actual learning at the edge. And this will be good for things like image recognition. ARM talked to people about building a cane for someone that can detect falls or maybe can detect things like see things that are in the way. So it would vibrate to alert someone that, by the way, there's a curb here. By the way, there's a tiny Lego on the floor that's going to cause you immense pain. All of those things. The first design is the Cortex M55. That is traditional ARM technology. And then they created an entirely new architecture called the Ethos U55. And that is actually going to be like a neural network coprocessor. So all that's going to do is any sort of neural network work. So that could be a the convolutional neural networks that we use for computer vision. It could be like the long-term, short-term networks that, or the recurrent neural networks that we use to teach things like how to like play video games. So all of that's going to be out there. Companies are going to be licensing it as of now, and we won't see it in products until about 2021. I think this is a trend, obviously, that, I mean, you know about this, like moving everything, pushing this stuff to the edge. We were talking before about a, a company at the spoon, we cover just food and technology and sort of the convergence of those two things, but a company called Sensory, and I'll never forget them because they sent out their release on Christmas Eve, which what? I thought was, yes, it was, and it was embargoed. So I, so I wrote it up and then released it on Christmas Eve, which was happy for me because then I had a story that was up on Christmas Eve. But like they created a voice assistant on the edge. And part of the appeal with this stuff is sort of the privacy consideration. Then things aren't being beamed back to the cloud, right? Like you can you can have all this stuff at the edge. And because I don't cover it as much, this may be a dumb question, but just asking, like, are you seeing this sort of this AI pushing to the edges so like in all of the devices that are coming out? Or what are you seeing in that in terms of that? There's actually a kind of an interesting bifurcation happening. So Google is like local, local, and they're doing it less so for privacy, more for latency. But it is mm-hmm. nice for privacy perspective. Apple is doing it for privacy perspective. Meanwhile, Amazon isn't really pushing very much to the edge so far or hasn't talked about it. So yes, I am seeing that. It is hugely important. And 100%, we're totally going to see more of it. So, And the cool thing about these chips is that they're actually really powerful. So you're going to be able to do things that you haven't been able to do before, which is like the story of silicon. But it's worth mentioning that like with good silicon comes amazing possibilities. That's all on chips. Chip corner. Okay, let's talk about quick news bits. Very fun stuff. Tuya, which is a Chinese IoT platform. They're behind a lot of big name brands. They are actually announcing an NB-IoT module. NB-IoT is a low power wide area networking technology. It's cellular. And Tuya's module is going to be certified for Europe, North America, and Asia. So it's going to have all the approvals. 
it'll work everywhere. And you can buy one module and stick it in all of your devices that will be sold then around the world. Yay. Hooray. LifeX, the company behind Wi-Fi light bulbs that are brilliantly, brilliantly colored. I feel like that should be a motto, but that's just how I think of them. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you call an advertising tagline a motto. Like that's, this is... It should be an advertising talent. This is our motto as a company. Brilliance should be brilliant. They're very pretty. They're quite frankly, I think they're prettier. The colors are prettier than hue. I'll be honest. Um, Okay. But I do have hues all over my house and I only have one LifeX bulb. But if you have bought into LifeX, probably because they're Wi-Fi and you didn't need a hub, they are now making a switch. It will be out in March. Right now it's going to be on sale for a hundred bucks. This switch is beautiful. I'm just going to tell you, but it is a switch that has to be wired into the wall. And it is kind of expensive compared to the other wired switches out there, but it has four programmable switches. So do with that what you will. It's very minimalist, very sleek. It is. It's so pretty. I'm probably going to use that as the art for the show notes so you guys can look for it. Okay. Ooh, there is a new drug in town. No, it's not there yet, but... Huey Lewis? No. Oh. But there is a company called SmartTab, and they are making a connected pill for Crohn's disease, which it's a GI issue. The cool thing is this pill is connected. It'll connect to your watch or to your phone, and it will disperse its medicine when it's in the right part of your GI tract, which to me is crazy. So it'll tell your phone, it'll be like, I guess... I'm passing through the ileum or the duodenum, and I don't know my my biology all that well. So I'm hanging out in one part of one intestine. I should release now, and you'll be like, yes, and it'll do it. Is this a uh, miniaturized ship with uh, Raquel Welch and a bunch of other guys that has been injected into you? Is that what we're talking about? We are not talking about that movie. What is that movie? Fantastic Voyage. That's it. Fantastic. We are not talking about Fantastic Voyage. All right. Worth a shot. That'd be pretty cool. This is not real. You can't buy it yet. They're beginning human studies in 2020. And the goal is to get FDA approval sometime this year or next. But talk about really cool, I think. Okay. Other news. This is for you, Chris. Pico Brew. Pico Brew. Yeah. So Pico Brew, again, so the spoon, we cover basically food tech stuff. And Pico Brew is something we've been writing about for a number of years. It's a crowdfunded homebrew appliance, right? So it can fit on your countertop and you can make your own beer with it. And Pico Brew, long story short, was looking for funding. They had a bridge loan and then they were put into receivership. So the company is, the the loan was called in and they're being put up for sale. So what's interesting about this is just that they were a crowdfunding. They did a number of projects on Kickstarter and they raised millions of dollars and shipped product. So they were sort of this gold standard in the food world about being able to create a homebrew system that that came to market. There were a number of other ones that were funded that never came to market. But now they're being put up for sale. And part of the issue was sort of that they were going in a lot of different directions. But it's sort of what it makes us wonder, what we were talking about today on our own podcast at The Spoon was just, does this mean that there isn't really a market for homebrew, like high-tech homebrew appliances because so many of them are no longer ongoing concerns or is it like just this sort of implementation of it? I don't know. Like I've never brewed beer, but the appeal of a device to me is that I don't have to deal with all the buckets and bleaching and, you know, all the sterilization. It seems like if I can just push a button and have it done, then 
that would be one thing, but maybe the people who like it really like it for that reason and don't want an appliance and there aren't enough people who want to make their own beer when they can just go to the corner and grab a six pack. I, I don't know. Like yeah, I think the resurgence in craft beer, good craft beer in the U.S. may be causing them a problem. How much was the Pico Brew? They had a bunch of different ones. They had ones. So part of the problem was that they they had like the Zymatic. Is that what it's called? That was for small brewers. So it did larger batches. And then they had the Pico Brew uh, C, I think, was the home device. And then they tried to come out with a U, which would do like cold brew coffee and golden milk and all this other stuff. But then they suspended that. And so they uh, they had a still at one point. And they were in all what evidently what the guy was told us was just that they had a really complex cap table and that they, you know, they weren't so far into one market to where a buyer would come in and want to, you know, take over that particular kind of business. And they were all over the place. Uh, they even get under like they have this cask forage product, which ages uh, new like grain spirits overnight or, or quickly, I should say. So you could create a whiskey and no time flat instead of having to age it for eight years. If you're a small distillery, you don't have to wait that long until you have a product. So, you know, they were kind of all over the place. It's sad to see. And it's, you know, there's a lesson in there somewhere for someone looking to uh, create their own spirits based product. Should I take anything away from like the failure of Juicero, the failure of, let's see, Jewel, which got bought. I think it was kind of a fire sale. Should I take anything out of like the dedicated connected kitchen appliance market? So I think what you're seeing is that there is sort of a, a shakeup as the industry mature. So, you know, Jewel had to be, you know, they laid off a bunch of people. They made the sous vide, a connected sous vide device that was beautiful and worked really well. And Namaku is another uh, sous vide appliance that, you know, these were all you could control it with your phone. But sous videing takes a long time. And people, I think, were enamored of it because it was finally a device where you could do it at home. And, oh, the steak tastes amazing. But, like, I don't want to spend 100 minutes putting it in a warm bath and then having to sear it, right? So you're seeing – and now you're also – there are a bunch of connected ovens. And Brava got bought by Middleby, and they had this high-tech oven that worked well. But do you want to spend $1,100 on another oven that sits on your countertop and cooks with light? And you can't even see into it except through a fisheye camera, Right. Like there are, you know, we'll see. So what's happening with what's going to happen with the June or Tavala? Like, is there enough of now that the the kind of wow tech is there? Is there enough of a market there to sustain it over the long haul? Or are they just going to get subsumed into other larger companies and have their tech incorporated into traditional like more, you know, tr like wall ovens and refrigerators and stuff like that? Man, you're going to pry my June out of my cold, dead hands or they're going to have hey, to look, turn my June into a cold, dead oven. I, I'm right there with you. I've unlocked the Brussels sprouts on the June and they are like eating candy. It is amazing. There you go. All right. You, Chris, have a device for us that is not a fancy oven and should, because it's a major brand, maybe be here for a while. But what are you playing with? So I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest and it's been cold. It is not typically barbecue season up here, but I've been using this Traeger Wi-Fi connected grill, the Pro 575. The company sent me to it, sent it to me to test it out. It's a Wi-Fi connected pellet smoker. And what's nice about it, I've never smoked a thing in my life because I'm Wait, like, is Ugh. it a grill or a smoker? It's a, I think you can use it for a grill because you can turn it up, but it's not like a direct heat kind of thing. Like it is a, a wood pellet smoker with an auger it automates everything. But I have cooked like steak on it. I have cooked ribs. I have cooked brisket. There are a number of things. And it comes with, the guy even said I should cook bacon on it. 
because they have this coffee rub for bacon that is supposed to be amazing. I would like to be there when you do that. <laughs> I will invite you over. I've never smoked anything because it, the idea of spending nine hours tending to a fire to make sure it's the right temperature for the amount of time just seemed like a nightmare. But this automates everything and it runs it through an app on my phone and I can see if I need, if the recipe calls for adjusting a temperature at a particular time, I can do it. I can monitor the pellet level in case it runs low. I can set timers or adjust timers or set it for an, a notification if it hits a certain temperature. And literally, I've just been putting meat on this thing and just letting it sit for hours. And it has come, it has been, I have not had a bad experience with it yet. I smoked a turkey for Thanksgiving and then ribs over the weekend. And they have just, it's just been so nice to have, I can just look at the phone and go like, oh, okay, everything's fine. You know, probe is still in the thing. It's getting to the right temperature. Everything's working. And uh, it is just, I say that because I am not a good griller. My wife does all the grilling in the house, cooking meat on open, you know, any kind of flame. I usually don't do it, but now now I feel like I can. Okay. And this is a $799.99 yes. device. It's Wi-Fi, and you have to buy the pellets, right? Yeah, you get the pellets, but you can get those at like a hardware store or even Safeway. Oh, wow. It has a drivetrain, y'all. I don't even know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Chris. That's, that's awesome and not something I would try myself. Although I will say I have eaten the ribs that I – the ribs I ate at your house were – they were cooked on this thing, right? Yeah. In yeah, butter. Yeah. They were amazing. Yeah, they were pretty good. Yes, and my heart is still going. I can't believe it. Okay, now it is time for the Internet of Things podcast hotline. That's right. This is the section of the show where we take your questions and we attempt to answer them. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer, give us a call at 512-623-7424. And the nice news is you will be entered to win a prize for our February drawing if you call and leave a message before the end of this month. Yay! Not 100% sure what the February drawing prize is, but it's going to be good. You're going to want it, and it's free. Why wouldn't you? Okay, this week's question is from Rebecca. Okay, this week's voicemail is actually an email, which we don't often do, but sometimes we make an exception. So. This week's email is from Rebecca. Hello, I'm a newer listener of your podcast. It's cool. I love my Madam A devices. I have a physical disability and use a power wheelchair, so having the ability to see who's at my door and talk to them via my phone or Echo Spot is really intriguing. I may end up upgrading to a show. Not sure yet. Anyway, I know you've talked a lot about Ring, but with all of the privacy concerns, I'm nervous to try it. What would your recommendation be for a video doorbell that's easy to set up, safe, not easily hackable, and compatible with Echo devices? I've been trying to do research online, but my brain keeps getting overwhelmed because everyone has a different opinion. Thanks so much for your help. Rebecca, you are trying to do something that should be really easy. In practice, it is not. And the reason is Amazon owns Ring. The best way to get the best experience is actually to have both an Amazon show, an Amazon Echo show, and a Ring doorbell. I'm going to tell you, we have talked a lot about Ring. Ring has now, through their privacy control, they've made it easier for you to not respond to police requests for videos, if that's something you're worried about. From a security perspective, Ring does get you the option of turning on two-factor authentication. So you should do that, especially 
it's an outdoor camera, but if you are worried about people talking to you or looking in on your camera, then this would make sense to do two factor. I just bought my in-law, my sister-in-law, a ring camera and or a ring doorbell. And so I don't think it's terrible if you have the right precautions. So that's going to be your best bet simply because when the doorbell rings, you can set it up so it will pop up on your Echo Show or Echo Spot. And it's fast, it's easy, it works. Now, my favorite doorbell is actually the Nest Hello. And you can use the Nest Hello with your Echo Gear. You can actually use other good doorbells like the Eufy or the Remo Plus. The trade-off is when someone rings your doorbell, your Echo Show is not going to be like, hey, someone's at the door. Instead, you're going to hear the doorbell and you're going to have to say, Madam A, show me front doorbell camera or display front doorbell camera. And when Madam A hears that, she's going to wake up. She's going to call for the API, make the API call, try to get to it. There's like seven to maybe even 20 seconds will pass. And then you will see who's at your door. But that's a long time. So that's kind of your trade-off there that you're looking at. I would encourage you, just because I like the Google system a little bit more, to do a Google Home Hub with some sort of Google Smart Display and a Nest Hello doorbell if you're still like, if you're not married to the Echo ecosystem. That's my advice to you. That's a seamless and really excellent experience. I look forward to the musical My Favorite Doorbell uh, to hit Broadway sometime soon. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and the song is Ding Dong, the Cartel is Dead. No, the Monopoly is Dead. Okay. Terrible. Terrible. Remember, if you have a question for us, give us a call 512 623 7424. And that concludes this portion of the Internet of Things podcast. Please stay tuned for our guest, Naomi Lefkowitz of NIST, who is going to be talking about what you need to know from the new privacy framework. And I'm going to give a big thank you to Chris Albrecht for co-hosting the show with us. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it and learned a lot. All right. And now a message from our sponsor. Hey, everyone. We are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Digicert. And I have VP of IoT Security, Mike Nelson, here from Digicert. Today, we're talking about low-powered devices and how to secure them. So according to a Juniper research study, service revenue from low-power IoT devices will grow 800% over the next five years. That means it's going to exceed $2.6 billion by 2024. This all begs the question, so what are low-powered IoT devices and what kind of applications are they going to be used for? Yeah, low-powered IoT devices really are devices that have limited computing power. They're deployed in all industries. We see a lot of these low-power devices as really tracking sensors. Um, in the smart city, we see traffic lights, parking stalls, utility sensors. In healthcare, we're seeing some really innovative uses for medication consumption, uh, location tracking for patients, and even devices that track patient vitals from a remote location. What kind of data are these devices transmitting? Three types of data. The first is automation data, and that's data that helps facilitate the automation of a decision, such as settings on a thermostat. Status data that tells you the status of something, 
such as is the light green or is the parking stall open? And the final one is location data. And that tells you the location of something. And that can be a truck on the road, that can be a medical device in a hospital or a patient that has potentially left a hospital. Those are the three types of data that is being generated by them. That's a lot of data. So how should we think about securing these low-powered devices? Yeah, so I think the data is uh, the topmost concern for these and making sure that there's integrity and confidentiality of the data. Governments and businesses and even consumers are consuming this data and using it to make decisions. And so the security and the privacy of that data is really important. Okay, and how can these devices be protected or secured? Yeah, so most IoT devices have one of three vulnerabilities. Uh, The first one is authentication, and that's really about keeping the bad guys out. The second one is about confidentiality and how you handle the data in a secure way. And encryption is the best practice for that. The final one is the integrity of the data and knowing that you can trust the data and that it hasn't been manipulated. And leveraging security best practices like digital signatures and code signing is best practice for ensuring integrity. Great. And where can our listeners go to find out more about DigiCert and how it secures low-power IoT devices? Your listeners can go to digicert.com, and we have an entire section on IoT. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Naomi Lefkowitz, who is a senior policy advisor at NIST. Hello, Naomi. How are you today? Hi, Stacey. I'm great. Thank you for having me. I always tell people I'm so excited, but in this, I really am because NIST released last month a privacy framework, and it's very in-depth. I read it. I read it again. I read articles about it, and I was like, it's a lot. So I'm glad to have you on the show to help kind of explain this at a high level for us and maybe go a little deeper on some of the things. So thank you. So this is out. Talk to us about why NIST put out this framework. So... NIST has been working in this area of privacy engineering and risk management for a number of years now. I I lead our privacy engineering program, and we've been very interested in the issues of around trustworthiness and how do we make products and services more trustworthy, which, you know, I think traditionally has been sort of thought of as equating trustworthiness and security. And, you know, we see that as adding other characteristics like privacy in terms of how people perceive trustworthiness. But I'd say in the summer of 2018, you know, we started getting inquiries from industry and the administration, given the environment with all this new regulation coming on, like the European GDPR and California law, uh, as well as major privacy incidents in the news. People were wondering whether NIST did such a successful job with the cybersecurity framework, whether we could do something similar for privacy. Uh, And so we really set out on that journey and then really thought we would model the process at at a minimum after the cybersecurity framework, because we think that open, transparent collaboration with stakeholders when, you know, we're talking about a voluntary tool, really need that stakeholder buy-in because it needs to be something valuable that they want to pick up and use. So we thought, uh, you know, we would follow that process and see where that took us. And and now we have the end result. Right. Now let's talk about those end results. Actually, before we get to that, we should really clarify, because you've talked about this being voluntary. This is not something 
a company has to do, but why would they want to do it? Yeah, absolutely. We really like to emphasize that point. This is a voluntary tool. And, you know, we think that it can help organizations. First and foremost, we see this as a privacy risk management tool that can help organizations sort of bring privacy into better parity with other types of risks they might be managing at the enterprise level. And in so doing, help them to really build customer trust. The framework can support them in sort of ethical decision-making about how to, you know, optimize beneficial uses of data while minimizing adverse consequences for people and even society as a whole. So that's sort of, you know, the heart of the, the purpose of the framework. But that said, we, you know, absolutely recognize that privacy has evolved in a very regulatory sort of requirements-driven type of environment. And, and so we do see the framework as also being able to help organizations fulfill their, their compliance obligations. And by that, we mean it's not that, the, you know, using the framework will necessarily make you compliant with any particular law or regulation or standard, but rather that you can, you know, use the activities and outcomes in the framework to demonstrate what types of measures you might be meeting to meet your legal obligations. And then that actually leads to what we see as sort of maybe the third key value proposition is that this tool really can help facilitate communication about privacy, privacy risk, privacy practices, both inside the organization, other organizations, customers, you know, and even potentially assessors and, and regulators. Okay, it is a noble goal. Let's see how it does it. All right. This is, like you mentioned earlier, modeled on the cybersecurity framework, which I, I know many of our listeners are at least somewhat familiar with. But there are three big areas. Do you want to kind of broadly go over those three areas? And then we'll dig a little deeper into them. Sure. So exactly as you said, we've modeled this after the cybersecurity framework. We heard that very clearly from stakeholders as we were developing it. So the key constructs are the, the core, which is we call it the core, which really provides sort of an increasingly granular set of activities and outcomes that enable an organizational dialogue about managing privacy risk. The second component um, is what we call profiles. And that really helps to make sure that the core doesn't become some kind of checklist. So profiles are essentially just an organization's selection of different parts of the core, which is sort of comprised itself of functions, categories, and subcategories. And then these are the what the organization prioritizes to help them manage privacy risk. And then the third piece is what we call implementation tiers. We really see that as a set of benchmarks. We use our one to four tiers that help an organization communicate about whether it has sufficient processes and resources in place to manage the privacy risk that it's identified and ultimately achieve its profiles. So, you know, something you can do with the profiles is you can have sort of this current profile, which is sort of what you're currently doing in terms of privacy and activities and outcomes. And then you can develop a target profile, which is where you want to go and create this kind of action plan. And that's really an important part of that communication piece that allows you to talk to senior management and say, hey, these are the kinds of resources and budget that we're going to need to get to our goals. 
Okay, so that's a lot. Let's try to apply this maybe to an example. Let's say that I am a company and I am developing a connected refrigerator because everyone loves internet connected refrigerators. So let's start with a connected refrigerator, which I feel like probably doesn't have as much privacy risk, but let's let's walk down the process that we're supposed to go through with this. Sure, absolutely. So one of the things that we did in the framework, we provide sort of a little bit of a few different ways you could use the framework. And one is we've sort of created this simple ready, set, go model. And so so we could use that with this example. So sort of under ready, you know, you start by looking at you know, what we consider sort of the foundational functions. So there's five functions, identify, govern, control, communicate, and protect. And, you know, what we found with the cybersecurity framework was that this is sort of part of the increasingly granular concept. You know, you start with these high-level functions, and they're very good for communicating with the C-suite or the board who are not going to be privacy or cybersecurity experts, and they're not going to want to get down in the weeds of talking about no encryption or privacy notices or what have you. But, they want to, you know, sort of generally understand, okay, I can understand these five simple rules and, and how to power managing privacy and cyber security. So we start with those sort of five high-level functions and identify and govern are what we would consider foundational. Now, we, you know, we don't look at this as a hierarchy because we think of this as iterative. You can go in at any point. This is meant to not replace anything that you might be doing, any kind of processes you're doing, but really to augment. But let's just say, let's just say for argument's sake, you really don't have much of a privacy program. Okay. So we'll just sort of start at the beginning. And, and so you might start with identify and govern because they really are sort of helping with the sort of foundational organizational level practices and activities. Identify really starts with inventory and mapping. You're going to want to understand with your refrigerator what data is being collected and then what happens to that data. So, you know, how, how do you follow that through the data lifecycle? Is that data being stored somewhere? Is that data being transmitted, disclosed to any other entities? Are you analyzing it in some way, aggregating it, transforming it, you know, and then, you know, how do you ultimately dispose of it? And by dispose of it, you mean like, I'm going to keep this data for this amount of time and then I'm going to... Destroy it, yes. You're you're just going to delete it from AWS and hope that that gets rid of it. Well, yes, hopefully, and that, that we have that also in the framework that you have contracts, right, with your service providers, and hopefully you're putting into your contracts the the policies and, and requirements that you need so that, you know, if you send a message, I want this data deleted, then that data should be deleted. And that's kind of really interesting because in a lot of companies, you might have like an engineer whose responsibility is to make sure like your app works on a mobile device. And a lot of these applications that try to check for quality on a mobile device, they might get a lot of data about the person's device and home address or Wi-Fi address. And and that may not be something you want to share with them, but you have to communicate that to the people who are responsible for signing those contracts. That feels daunting. You know, it is. And, you know, this is where there is a lot of work to be done. Um, and, uh, you know, I could show you some of the places in the framework where we are encouraging outcomes around, you know, to transmit, we call processing permissions, right? So do not disclose this Wi-Fi 
router or whatever, and you know, and or do not mingle, commingle this data with that data, right? And so, and you know, there's a lot of work to be done going forward. We don't have very, with the exception of I think the most sophisticated companies, that you know, it's not widely done and used that kind of data tagging. So, and that's one of the reasons we've actually called that out as a roadmap area. We have a companion roadmap of challenge areas that need more work. So that will be some ongoing collaboration that we do. But I digress slightly. <laughs> so we'll go back uh, to the fridge. No, that's a, that was a useful digression. But let's go back to the fridge. So, so we go back to the fridge. So now we sort of you know, understood all the processing about that data. And we've kind of created, hopefully, a, a nice little illustrative data map so we can see where things are going and who's involved. All that's going to be very important for figuring out your privacy risk assessment, which is because privacy is so contextual, right? You know, if you, you know, you do nothing with the data, that's going to be one thing. If you suddenly start sharing it with the milk companies who get to say, hey, not only did you forget your milk, but have you tried like our fabulous milk? (laughs) It's very different set of privacy risks between just simply um, internal analysis and message about, you know, hey, you forgot your milk. So, and, you know, and oh, by the way, here's a coupon, right? Right. Yeah. And, and again, you know, that, that might be very desirable, but it's, or it might not. And I think that's the privacy risk management question that needs to be asked. So we go work our way through identify. We really want to understand the business environment, which is just what I was describing. Like, what's your organization's sort of overall business priorities? Is it simply providing a more convenient fridge or is it, you know, making money with partners, right, on on this data? Understanding that um, is important because you can have the best privacy solution in the world, but it is going to be a barrier uh, or an obstacle to your organization meeting, you know, achieving its business or mission priorities, then no one's going to adopt that solution, right? So, so we want to find a solution that helps organizations move forward, but also protect privacy at the same time. You know, I will say, when we and now that we're sort of the next stage is getting to risk assessment. You know, there we've developed a risk model that is really centered around the individual and the kinds of problems that they could experience from from the processing of their data. By processing, I mean that that full information lifecycle that we talked about. So you can analyze how is this fridge collecting information? You know, what's it disclosing? Are people likely to feel like, you know, there was some sort of unanticipated revelation, like they didn't realize that data about their milk, you know, usage would be sent to, you know, dairy companies or something, and then that would result in coupons. Will people be happy about that, or will they feel embarrassed or, you know, um, uncomfortable in some way? Those kinds of, you know, risks, and then, you know, under- and analyzing that impact is really part of the risk assessment, which then gets to the final point of sort of figuring out how you're going to respond. And so, you know, you might decide that that the risk that people will not like your product outweighs, you know, any potential benefits to your business model. And you might decide to do a different type of processing, right? You're not going to do coupons or, you know, or you'll let them choose whether they want coupons or not, or, you know, so that's a sort of a form of mitigation. And so, you know, there are different responses that you can do, but now you've actually had a, what we call sort of a eyes wide open process, right? That you've walked through 
You've identified the risks to the best of your ability. We look, we look at privacy like security. There's no perfect security, no perfect privacy, but you've identified the risks the best that you can, and you've made some decisions that everybody can understand and presumably accept. And I like that idea of there's no perfect privacy, which is true, but it is very scary to imagine or to, to see what's happening, which is a lot of data gathering around us, about us, and then it gets shipped to so many different places we have no control over as consumers. So it's nice that basically this is coming in and saying, hey, let's be thoughtful about the data you're collecting, who you're sharing it with, and how that behaves, and and what are the repercussions from that. Let's talk about, I want to say, how you know you've succeeded. And this, to me, sounds like the implementation tiers, because there are four different levels there where you're, I think of it like, eh, I am trying, I am on my way, and yeah, I've got a strong program, but you guys call it something else. But can you kind of talk about where that comes from? And maybe should everyone be striving to be like, I have got the goods. You know, we see this as, again, a type of communication tool, a kind of benchmark that organizations can use to help discuss, you know, do I have sufficient resources and processes in place and to manage my privacy risk? And if not, what do I need? And so, you know, I'll I'll say that in general, we feel that if, if you are at tier one, you probably should be at tier two. But but beyond that, it's not sort of a... The, the kind of maturity model where there's sort of a relentless march from, you know, two to four. Um, it's really, again, about the types of privacy risks that you need to manage. So depending on your risk, let's take one of the elements of the tiers is, is workforce. And so at tier two, you know, we look at sort of workforces. Yes, you might have somebody who, you know, understands privacy risks, sort of, you know, has responsibility for it. But they might wear multiple hats. It might not be the only thing they do. And depending on your type of privacy risk, that might be absolutely fine. Or it might not. And maybe you need to move to three or four where, you know, up at four, you have a very multi-layered, um, diverse type of privacy workforce. You probably have somebody up at the senior level, like a chief privacy officer, down through having privacy engineers. Obviously, that's a very different resource allocation for a workforce like that. Got it. Okay. What is the goal for this framework? Is it stable in time or do you expect to revisit in five years and add, I guess, new things to it? I, I don't know. Like, how do you expect privacy to evolve over the next few years? So we consider this a living document, again, very similar to the cybersecurity framework. So that's why we call this version 1.0. This is a you know stable document for the time being. We're going to be focusing in the next year or so on implementation, getting feedback so that we can understand from stakeholders how we might need to evolve it to continue to meet their needs, particularly in a changing policy and technology environment. Got it. All right. Naomi, I have to ask, having worked on this and understanding where we are, the state of privacy right now, how do you feel about connected devices and your overall privacy right now? In my own home, I have have very, very few connected devices. I'm a very slow adopter. 
I, I don't have a lot of, I want to see organizations doing more privacy risk management, doing more innovative types of solutions. You know, one thing that we well, we didn't sort of get into, you know, we sort of were at the basis in, in the foundational sort of governance structure. Certainly part of our govern function is identifying your legal requirements, and that's very important. But today, a lot of those legal requirements are focused around, you know, notices that I personally, you know, I know I'm not alone, even as a private expert, I don't have the time to read. And frankly, they don't tell me a whole lot that I really want to know anyway. And so, you know, what I want to see is sort of more innovative solutions. And so what we've tried to put into our our sort of control and communicate functions are, you know, more about the kinds of capabilities that you could build in. So we have outcomes like how do you enable your device to make data processing more visible, right? I'm not going to go to some website to read a long privacy policy about my refrigerator and what it's doing. Maybe it could just tell me, right? And, you know, while it's nagging me about the mill, it, it could just tell me something or it just could give me a blinking light or, or some other type of visual that something's going on with, with data. You know, I would like to see sort of more of a communication feedback loop, right? So we put in some outcomes around how do you get that feedback? For example, survey focus groups to understand your customers' privacy interests more. We know that they will certainly be testing that fridge from a, you know, a functionality standpoint with focus groups. Perhaps they could expand that to understand people's privacy interests around that fridge as well. So there are some, I think, the ways that we are trying to give you know, again, I want to emphasize this is a voluntary tool. And so what we really see is this as a set of outcomes that enable more discussion. So I'd love to see organizations having that conversation internally. How should we design this this refrigerator? And then to see that evidence that might uh, induce me to put one of those fridges in my home. Got it. Well, yes. And I, I've got to say the connected fridge does not spark joy, as it were, for me. So, <laughs> Naomi, thank you so much for coming on the show, for going deep into the privacy framework for us and everything else. Thank you. Great. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 